Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Pivot Bio. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot Bio Proven, text PROVEN to 31313. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. In June 2020, soil scientist Ratan Lal was named the 2020 World Food Prize Laureate, an award established in 1986 by agronomist Norman Borlaug. The international honor is given each year to recognize individuals who have improved the quality, quantity, or availability of food in the world. Originally from India, Lal has worked around the globe, but has called Ohio State University home since 1987. In the 1970s, his research diverged from the conventional reliance on commercial fertilizers, and he began to develop theories about the role of carbon on soil health and the impacts on nutrient management and yields. His research led to a better understanding of how no-till farming, cover crops, crop residues, and agroforestry can restore degraded soils, increase organic matter, and help combat rising carbon dioxide levels in the air. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, I caught up with Law by phone and chatted with him about some of his theories and experiences. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you came to specialize in soil science, and then how you end up up at uh, Ohio State. Thank you. Well, I am native of India. I was born in a small agricultural village uh, in part of then India, which is now in Pakistan. In 1947, then my family moved to the Indian side of the same state, a few hundred miles east and uh, did the same farming. My father and my brother and uncle, they all had a small farm. I was the one who kind of uh, got away and uh, studied. Uh, I went to a college, which happened to be at that time uh, having cooperation with the Ohio State University to change from college to land-grant university. I joined in 59 and uh, the college was then converted into agricultural university in 1962. And the first class that received degree from that university called Punjab Agriculture University was my class. So I received degree from the university established in India with the help of the Ohio State University. One of the professors was teaching me, had just returned back from Ohio State, and he was teaching soil science. And um, he encouraged me and uh, supported me to study soil science and also recommended me to come to Ohio State. So after I finished uh, a BS and MS degree in India, both in soil science, I came to Ohio State uh, again studying soil science. My master's degree was in New Delhi. And there I um, received an assistantship for doing graduate work from the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, the director of the Rockefeller Foundation at that time in India 
um, who interviewed me for the assistantship in was Ralph Cumming Sr. And Ralph Cumming was also from Ohio. So there are quite a lot of links, incidentally, or fortunately, that I was associated with Ohio State. And then I came here and do my PhD in soul science uh, in 1968. So that's kind of the background, a farm fa family uh, background and studying soil science because professors from Ohio were involved and they encouraged and motivated. Nice. And then I came back to, I graduated from Ohio State in 68 and went to Australia, Sydney, University of Sydney for a couple of years. And from there I joined again a position offered to me by the Rockefeller Foundation to go to Africa at a place called Ibadan, Nigeria. And they established a center, Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, the USAID, called International Institute of Tropical Agriculture. So I worked there for almost 18 years. The first two years, it was Ford and Rockefeller Foundation and USAID. And I think in 74 or 75, it became part of the CGIAR system, which runs 16 institutes of that nature around the world. Uh, Philippine Rice Research Institute, um, Mexico Wheat and Corn Institute, and which was very famous because Dr. Borlaug was working at that institute, who then started the, uh, who received the Nobel Prize in 1970, and then started the World Food Prize uh, from 1986 onward. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the background I have. So from what I understand, you started focusing on soil's physical properties in the 1970s, which really ran counter to the standard of the day when it was really all about replacing nutrients by applying fertilizer. How did you come to focus on restoring depleted yeah. rather than... Well, um, okay. When I went to Nigeria and also before that in India, when I was growing up on a farm, uh, the major problem was drought high soil temperature, very hot soil temperature. A child running around the farm barefoot, uh, looking after cows. Uh, first thing you notice is how hot the soil is. Um, and drought and dust storm and locust. India had locust problem just now, a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. I remember locust problem on the farms uh, in the uh, late 50s and 60s. Oh, and the dust storm. Yeah. And sometimes you could not just distinguish between a dust storm and a locust storm, are both equally miserable. So I was always interested in the physical property, then came to Nigeria, and the major problem, even though uh, this, it was a humid tropics, on a cleared land, soil erosion was a major thing. Soil would just wash away. Mm -hmm. That was my first experience, very first experiment. It got washed away because of soil erosion, mm -hmm. which I had not seen like that before and then a few days after a heavy rain drought plants wilting we just had a rain four inches three days ago plants wilt soil had no capacity to hold water so hot soil temperature serious erosion very serious drought immediately after soil got compacted fertilizer were not effective so the, naturally the question was, what can I do to control erosion? What can I do to moderate temperature? What can I do to minimize drought problem? 
what can I do to reduce crusting and compaction so that the fertilizer can be useful, so that the improved varieties can be grown properly to realize the potential. So my strategy was completely different. Aha, uh -huh. very interesting. Wow, so and how well were your ideas um, accepted at the Initially, not very well. Uh, for example, I was talking about don't plow, leave the ground covered, have a mulch, uh, grow a cover crop immediately after forest clearing so soil won't wash away. And the conventional recommendation of the time was plow as deep as you can, plow once at the end of the rain, then a second uh, tillage, like a cultivation of harrow, at the beginning of the rain, uh, make sure the seed bed is clean, uh, apply fertilizers, I was just the opposite. So there was quite a lot of opposition. Mm -hmm. There were tractor hiring services in Africa, whether it was Anglophone or Francophone. Most of the French countries surrounding Nigeria, like Cameroon, uh, on the east side, uh, on the west side, Benin, Niger, on the north side, Chad, Niger, Burkina Faso, uh, Ivory Coast, the recommendations were plowing and applying chemical fertilizer. And I was talking something different. And um, there were debates. Lot of, and there were lots of doubts uh -huh. whether what I was saying was really correct. Mm -hmm. And um, so there were challenges. Yeah. But then the results uh, show something different. I can control erosion if I don't plow. I can conserve water if I leave the mulch on the ground. There is no crusting if there's a mulch. There are a lot of earthworms or termites in a mulch soil. You don't need plow <laughs> if you have earthworms and termites. And the fertilizer is not washed away. So my strategy was not putting fertilizers and plowing. It was different. How long did it take, do you feel, before people started saying, oh, maybe he's really onto something? <laughs> Well, there was opposition, definitely, and they were very good scientists to our opponent. Uh, but there were also some scientists who really understood what I was talking about, made sense, and they supported it. And one of them was Dennis Greenland. He was from Reading, UK. I knew him when I was in Sydney, Australia, met him there. And then he came uh, first as a board of director of the institute where I was working, representing UK government. And then in 75, when I was having more difficulties, he joined as a director of research. And he was very supportive. Uh, he would come out in the field, I'd show him after the rainfall, uh, look, uh, there is no erosion, there is no runoff. Soil temperature is 35 rather than 50, 52 on a bare ground. Clean. Uh, you pick up the soil, it's full of earthworm termites. Um, so he encouraged us setting up from a small plot where I was monitoring runoff and let's do it on a large scale, like four or five hectare, and see if you can prove this on a larger plot. It did, and we also monitored erosion on larger plots. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we set up an experiment where right from the deforestation to a cover crop after deforestation, then growing crops, in combination with agroforestry, we started watershed studies uh, on about 
40, 50 hectare, 100, 120 acre. Each plot was five to 10 acre size. It was a unique study, very well instrumented, very well designed. Unfortunately, when I left in 88, that study was discontinued. I went two years after it was out of all that heavy equipment, uh, expensive equipment, monitoring devices. Trees were growing straight through it, <laughs> all that kind of, it happens. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but it proved its point. I published quite a lot of articles, one in science. I published it before I left in 87. Okay. And another one in science I published in 2004, which was built upon what I did in 87, how to put the carbon back in soil, mm. came out in 2004. Okay. And it was uh, uh, that article in Science 2004 has uh, 6,000 citations today. Wow. Okay. That's acceptance of that concept. Absolutely. Yeah. An example of it, yeah. So um, you talk a lot about there being a connection between the health of the soil and the health of people. Can you talk about that and Certainly. what research you've done that supports that theory? Yeah. Um, I have been believing and promoting and suggesting a concept that the health of soil, plants, animal, people, and the environment is one and indivisible. It's an old concept, but it is uh, very much so uh, correct, and I uh, very much uh, support and I agree with it. A few years back, five years back, USDA NIFA was thinking of a concept called FUE, Food, energy, water, nexus. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I attended that meeting. It was organized by USDA at Texas A&M. And I said, there is something missing in that few. And somebody said, what is missing? I said, I think it should be fuse, F-E-W-S, food, energy, water, soil, uh-huh. nexus. <laughs> I was trying to go back to that interconnectivity. Again, nobody really took that seriously, they had made up their mind, it's a few, and, but my article in that meeting was FUSE, F-E-W-S, <laughs> and I was going back to that, that idea. It really goes back to ancient scriptures. If you look at, uh, and I'm going to give you examples of the Indian scriptures. Sure. Uh, there is a scripture from Sikhism, you know, I grew up in Punjab, mm-hmm. uh, even the Pakistan side of Punjab, the Sikh Guru Nanak, the founder, was born in what is now Pakistan, Guru Nanak. And there's a Guru Bani, Guru Bani, the message from the Guru. And Guru Bani says very nicely, Pawan Guru, Pani Pita, Mata Dharat Mahat. Pawan is wind. Wind is the Guru, air. Pani is water. Pani Pita. Water is the father. Mata, mother, dharth, soil, mahat, greatest, like Mahatma. Oh. They linked up three things together, water, air, soil. Oh. We in the U.S. still do not have the link. Mm. We have Air Quality Act. Mm. We have Water Quality Act. We do not have a Soil Health Act. Mm-hmm. And without Soil Health Act, that trinity is not complete. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I go back to Upanishad again in Sanskrit, and that goes back several thousand years back in Sanskrit. And the wording is something like this 
इट्स क्षति जल तवक गगन समीरा क्षति इज सॉयल जल इज वाटर तवक इज एनर्जी गगन इज स्पेस समीरा इज एयर पंच तत्व फाइव एलिमेंट्स अदम शरीरा एडम सेम एज इन हिब्रू ह्यूमन ह्यूमन बॉडी इज मेड ऑफ दिस फाइव एलिमेंट्स डू नॉट डिग्रेड दम अदरवाइज यू डिग्रेड ह्यूमन बॉडी वेन वी ट्राई टू सेपरेट फूड फ्रॉम सॉयल एंड सॉयल फ्रॉम वाटर एंड सॉयल फ्रॉम एयर दिस डिसकनेक्टिविटी creates the problems how can you leave soil out of it how right. can you leave soil out of water food and energy not right. possible right it is this mindset of leaving soil out of this principle nexus that creates the problem that connection is very important i think we need a policy translation we need a soil health act to make sure we complement clean air act and clean water act mm-hmm. the algal bloom the hypoxia issue the sediment transport in the mississippi they can only be addressed if water passes through the soil before it goes into the lakes or rivers or into the gulf of mexico yeah it does seem like the missing link for sure missing link yes and it should be somewhere taken care of very soon yeah right. yeah absolutely And so you also talk about the relationship between carbon and the soil's ability to hold on to water and nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen. Yeah, the soil health, you know like human health, we have some indicators. Like indicators is blood pressure or the temperature or the uh, rate of respiration or the uh, number of pulses or breathing. Uh, soil is also a living entity. That's why soil health it is because soil is a living entity and as a living entity similar to the human health there are some indicators of soil health so one of the important indicators of soil health is the soil organic matter content or soil organic carbon content organic matter and organic carbon are related to one another by a factor of 2 okay. soil organic matter is about 50% soil organic carbon so in a healthy soil soil organic carbon concentration in the root zone should be about 2% which means the soil organic matter content should be about 4% mm. so in a prairie before we have converted it or in a forest wooded area the soil organic matter content may be 4 5% soil carbon concentration may be 2.5 2 3% as we plow the organic matter content which was going into the soil as a detritus material root biomass leaf litter is not happening in rather than undisturbed soil is not plowed and plowing increases the decomposition rate temperature goes up moisture changes and it can be either blown away or washed away because now the soil is bare the organic matter in soil has a very low bulk density its density the weight and volume like density of water is 1 1 gram per cubic centimeter density of soil is about 1.3 1.4 gram per cubic centimeter if you take soil organic matter humus which makes soil dark and fluffy 
its bulk density is 0 0.3, 0 0.4. It is very light. It will float in water. So therefore, when water is flowing over the soil, organic matter is the lightest fraction taken the most preferentially. When wind is blowing over the soil, the wind also blows away the organ because it's light fraction. Mm -hmm. So soil erosion decomposition plowing, most of our agricultural soil in the Midwest have lost about 30%, maybe in worst case scenario, 40% of the organic carbon which was under native soil. Mm -hmm. If you take soils of Africa where I was working, or soils of India, Pakistan, South Asia, China, which have been cultivated for 10,000 years, 5,000 years longer, the organic matter content now in agricultural soil may be only 20% of what it was initially. Okay. Oh. The concentration should be about 2%, and in many cases which I have monitored, in Africa and South Asia, it may be 0.2%, one-tenth or less of what it should be. Wow. Consequently, when you broadcast fertilizers and you apply flood irrigation, soil doesn't have a capacity to hold on to the water and the nutrients. So the use efficiency is less. Soil is more erodible. And more depleted the new organic matter is, more tendency we have to add more nutrient and more water. That is not the solution. The solution is to build organic matter content. Through no-till farming, through leaving the crop residue, through recycling biomass, through cover cropping. So we come back to the original concept of no-till farming. But now we want to go a step further we want to call it conservation agriculture. Mm. And conservation agriculture, depends on who you talk to, in my opinion, it has five components. Some people will say three components, but I think it's five. Uh, one, no plowing. Two, leave the residue on the surface. Do not take it away, do not graze it. Leave it on the surface. Mm -hmm. Number three, go a cover crop in the off season. Winter wheat or rye or vetch or if you are in the tropics, puraria or kurzu or mukina or centrosema, something like a cover crop is very important. Follow complex rotations. And complex rotation means integration of crops with livestock and trees. So that's the number four component. So they are all integrated together. When we disconnect animal and trees from a we have created more problems. So disconnecting animal has created also problem. So integrate them wherever we can. And number five is follow integrated nutrient management. You recycle everything, compost, biomass, crop residue, and supplement with if you need additional NPK. But the priority should be recycling, biofertilizer, biological nitrogen, but I do not believe that you can not use chemical. No, you can. Only as a supplement in relation to how much yield you. And all those five principles are based on one law. And it's called the law of return. 
Okay. You must return back to the soil. What are you take away from it? Mm-hmm. In one form or the other. When you do not return back everything that is taken out, that is when we create a negative carbon, nutrient, nitrogen, fossil budget. And the negative budget is the degradation. So talk about the trees somewhat. How would you incorporate trees in a farming operation? Well, in a mechanized system such as we have in uh, Midwest United States, we can't have trees at very close spacing because we got large machinery. But there is no reason why trees cannot be put on uh, boundaries of the land. Mm-hmm. And um, at a probably across the wind direction, uh, if it is a sloping land, maybe on the contour at a certain uh, interval so that the tree create a vegetative barrier, a hedge, mm-hmm. so that the water run of velocity can be reduced. Uh, and it also creates biodiversity. Uh, this is the way the trees can be integrated. Mm-hmm. And trees, if you want to integrate with livestock, then those barriers of uh, trees, mm-hmm. maybe those trees could be fodder trees. Mm-hmm. Maybe those trees could be shade trees where the cattle would naturally come to those either for fodder or shade. And they would also recycle their uh, waste. Um, so it has a more chance of integration. Mm-hmm. I recently wrote an article. It's not published yet. I did have a hard time uh, convincing uh, to get it published. Uh, but it is integration of livestock with crops and trees, just on the basis of what we are explaining. We'll get back to Ratan Lal in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for supporting today's episode. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot BioProven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot BioProven, text PROVEN to 31313. Now let's get back to Ratan Lal as he talks about how certain farming practices can sequester carbon in the soil and how much farmers should be paid for implementing those practices. Soon after I started at No-Till Farmer, I came across this quote from you and I pinned it up on my wall. It says, a mere 2% increase in the carbon content of the planet's soils could offset 100% of all greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. So can you tell us about that and explain how you came to It's very academic and many people have caught it. Let us take an example. To one meter depth, the organic carbon content in soil is 1,500 gigaton. To 40 centimeter depth, the organic organic carbon content is 850 gigaton. So let's take 850 gigaton, 40 centimeter depth. So if you increase by 2%, if... Mm -hmm. At 850 times 2 divided by 100 is 17 gigaton. The fossil fuel combustion total emission globally in 2019 were 10 gigaton. Okay. 
So you understand that calculation. Yes. So if you take up to 30 centimeter depth, it's still about 500, 600 gigaton. And if you increase 2%, it's still less than 10 gigaton. So it is a theoretical example. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, is it possible? Probably not. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it was taken very seriously by Climate Summit in Paris okay. in 2015 mm -hmm. because the Minister of Agriculture had also seen that statement. So he and his advisor came to Columbus, Ohio mm. before the summit in this November, December. Okay. And the same question was discussed. How much carbon do we need to put in the soil so that we can negate the climate change? So at that time, the minister, his name was Stephen LaFolle, he said from 2005 to 2015, when we were meeting in uh, Cartman Hall, my building, the average increase in carbon stock in the atmosphere was about 3.5 gigaton per year, average of the whole decade from 2005 to 2015. So his interest was, how much carbon can I put back in the soil so that I can offset three and a half gigaton, which is going into the atmosphere? Mm -hmm. So we took the same example, how much soil is in the top layer. So we took 40 centimeter layer of all soils of the world as 850 gigaton. So if we can somehow multiply by 850 by 0.4, See. That will give 3.6 oh, right. or 3.4. Uh -huh. So he went back and made a recommendation to the world community, a French concept called quatre per mil, mm -hmm. four per thousand. Oh, okay. Put carbon in the soil at the rate of 0.4% per year, mm -hmm. 40 centimeter depth to negate the increase in atmospheric CO2. Oh, okay. So here is a global UN approved concept, cathar per mil. Okay. You can log it and you will see more detail of it. Okay, good. Exactly the same concept. And so uh, are you on board with the, all the, the current carbon credit initiatives by various companies to pay farmers for sequestering carbon? I fully support anybody who wants to pay farmers for compensating what they do. Um, I think the one that you may be talking about is Terraton program by Indigo. Yes. Uh, they are thinking about Terraton uh, Anybody who wants to do something for soil, I fully support them. Sometimes the numbers are so large that it, well, you had I told you whether we can increase 2%. The concept seems good, but can you do it? That's a different story. Even cattle per mill, 0.4%. As far as I'm concerned, even if we can achieve 0.1% mm -hmm. per year, we have done very well. Okay. Right now, we are not doing much at all. So, um, I, if we were to ask farmer to do those conservation agriculture five principles that I explained, mm -hmm. I think we must compensate them for doing it. I asked uh, many colleagues how much should we pay, and they said, "Well, it depends on demand and supply." 
And if there is a more demand and less supply, price goes up. If there's a more supply, less demand goes down. In Chicago Climate Exchange, the current price of carbon credit, 30 cents a ton of CO2. Mm. Which farmer will do for 30 cents a ton? You cannot get even a cup of coffee with that money. <laughs> it is undervaluing a major resource. So I calculated the price. Mm. If a farmer were to put all the residue, if they were to put additional fertilizer through somewhere to convert the residue into humus, the price of carbon is $125 a ton oh. of carbon. Okay. Of CO2, it would be 125 times 12 divided by 44. Mm. will be about $40 okay. a ton of CO2. Okay. If you are talking about one third of a ton of carbon per hectare, that's also $40 per hectare. Okay. Hectare is two and a half acre. So it's a $16 per acre. My recommendation is pay farmers $16 per acre throughout the United States and then make sure that they do what we think they should do. Mm -hmm. If we cannot pay them $16 per acre per year, we cannot demand them anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and so a recent report from the World Resources Institute argues that increasing carbon sequestration in the soil has limited potential for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So what do you think about that? I, uh, I was one of the authors who wrote a rebuttal. Um, and in fact, I have sent another one myself, which should come out in General Soil and Water Conservation in July. Yeah. I don't mention them by name because I don't think we are trying to, they are, some of them are very good friend of mine. Uh, but, you know, friend, you can differ with an opinion. I think their concept that regenerative agriculture will produce less and therefore uh, we will need more land to clear and more, uh, and it doesn't sequester carbon. I think it's a matter of not whether regenerative agriculture based on those five concepts works. Our goal is how to make it work. It's a different thinking. The current agriculture based on plowing and flood irrigation and dumping fertilizers and chemicals is not working either. The conservation agriculture controls erosion, conserves water, recycles nutrients, keep the ground cover, increases biodiversity. We have to make it work. And when I say have to, we have 300,000 soil types globally. Mm -hmm. To expect that one package of those five components will work across 300,000 soil is being naive. We have to fine tune that five components for each soil type, depending upon the biophysical condition and the socioeconomic condition. We have to fine tune the package in such a way that management package creates a positive soil carbon budget. That's our goal. As a local agricultural specialist, as an extension, I have to develop a package specifically to create a positive soil carbon budget. So the question they are asking is a wrong question. Mm -hmm. I used to ask this same question used to be asked to me in Africa by my French colleagues, 
would say, how do you know the no-tail works? We think it doesn't work. So no, for controlling erosion and controlling temperature and moisture, I have to make it work. It's my goal to make it work. I'm going to develop a package of practices that make it work. Excellent. Okay, good. So I think they're just asking the wrong question. That's all. And I have listed those five concepts uh, in the next article, which should be in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation in July. Okay, great. So you've also been quoted as saying um, the idea is not to maximize production, but to optimize production. What do you have to say about that? Well, uh, there are several reasons for it. At the moment, uh, we produce 3 billion tons of grains. About 1 billion tons, one-third of it is wasted. It never reaches any stomach. <laughs> Even in poor countries like India and elsewhere, 34% of the food produced, and as far as the vegetables and fruits are concerned, maybe 40 are wasted. You use soil, water, nutrients, fertilizers, energy. You produce everything, then waste. That's a crime against nature. Why keep producing? So the first responsibility is to use properly what we produce. So that's the first part. Use properly what you produce. And then the second part is we do not have to produce the highest yield of 12 tons of corn grains and lose soil and water and uh, cause uh, uh, algal bloom. I, I can cut back the yield, some, maybe 5%, and still sustain it over a longer period of time, rather than uh, having maximized it. Let me take another example, rice paddy. We flood the rice, we get good yield, but flooding in a desert climate like Punjab, in South Asia, the water requirement is so tremendous. If instead you grow aerobic rice, direct seeding, no tail, no flooding, yield may be 10% less, but the saving of resources and benefit economic is much greater. So you produce more and you waste because you can't, couldn't store it. What kind of wisdom is that? And I think the same thing applies for a resource poor farmers in let's say sub-Saharan Africa, and I was one of the small farmers myself, the most critical part is to have a system that produces desired, expected, assured yield during the worst season possible, rather than the highest seed yield in the best season possible. The life and death scenario of hunger for those poor farmers in Africa, and it depends on, in a worse season, drought and all the other issues, there must be some package of practice that give them, you, you are assured of this yield, so your family can survive. So, you know, soil science, as you know, obviously, is an incredibly rich, complex topic, and there's a great deal to learn about the soil microbial communities, how they interact with plants, fungi, minerals. Um, as you look to the future of soil science and farming, what do you think are some of the most important things to develop a better understanding of? I think we have to make sure that the importance of soil is recognized everywhere. Uh, soil and agriculture are respected professionally as a profession. I think sometimes they are not given the respect that they deserve, mm -hmm. agriculture and soil. Let me give you an example. 
uh, we all want our children and grandchildren to study medical or engineering or biotechnology or MBA or computer science or IT services. Why? The payment of those graduates versus a graduate in agriculture and soil is several times different. Why is it different? Because the society gives more value to other discipline than to the agriculture and soil. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. If not, they should be all paid equally. So somewhere educating general public and media that soil as the basis of our life and soil as a basis of the environment, studying it, understanding it, and agriculture, which is based on healthy soil, respecting it, and farmers who are steward of the land, they produce healthy food for us, we give them respect and make sure they are rewarded properly. That should be general part of the education. I would like to switch gears just a little bit. Um, you were named the uh, World Food Prize Laureate for 2020, which is a really wonderful honor, I'm sure. So congratulations on that, that award. Um, and this is awarded for, quote, outstanding achievements in the advancement of human development through improved food quality, quantity, or availability, end quote. So just tell me, what does this, what does winning this award mean to you? Well, it means quite a lot. I'm greatly honored, greatly privileged. I think it is an award to the recognition of the importance of soil. It's an award to the recognition of importance of uh, soil-centric agriculture. It's an award to the recognition of conservation agriculture that restores soil and the environment. And so on behalf of all the 60,000 soil scientists and on behalf of millions of hundreds of millions of farmers, I happen to be fortunate and lucky one to be selected to receive the award on their behalf, on behalf of all those people. And uh, just to let them know, that uh, this is recognition of uh, all the things we were talking about. Soils are important, the fuse concept, the nexus approach, the interconnectivity, that soil is a solution to environment and climate, soil is a solution to hunger and misery. It's a recognition of all that. Mm. For that, I am very grateful. And for that reason, I will also, like I did for my other awards, donate this money to further the cause of research and education in soil science. How will it happen? I do not quite know yet, <laughs> but it is not my money. It's a money to promote that profession mm. and it will be used for that purpose. Well, that is incredibly generous. That's a big money prize. It's a $250,000 prize. So. That's wonderful that you're sharing that. Uh, yeah. that the Japan Prize was 500000 Oh, and, uh, So I gave that also for such an education. Well, that's incredible. So I guess just wrapping things up, first I want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? Keep up the good work and let everybody know that agriculture and soil are the basis of peace and prosperity. And if we do these things properly and all the basic necessities are met, that will promote the tranquility and harmony that we are looking for. So this is the right path to go. We want to promote agriculture profession. We want to give it respectability that it deserves. And we want to reward farmers for going good agriculture. We must do that. 
Well, I couldn't have said it better. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Thank Dr. You. Paul. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks to Ratan Lal for this conversation about the critical role of the soil in the global food supply chain. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.